Welcome to episode 14 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. Joining us today is Dr. Nicholas Outram. Dr. Outram obtained a first-class honors degree in electrical and electronic engineering in 2002, then later a PhD in biomedical signal processing from the University of Plymouth in the United Kingdom in 1997. He has worked as an development engineer, first with Wandel and Golterman, focusing on real-time DSP software and hardware, then as a systems engineer with Neovanta Medical AB, focusing on development of fixed-point DSP for real-time signal processing of ultrasound and fetal ECG. He worked on design and validation of real-time signal processing algorithms and later refocused back onto research into methods for quantification of fetal heart rate reactivity. He is now an associate professor in computing and electronics at the University of Plymouth, specializing in iOS development, embedded systems, and digital systems design. He is currently updating his well-known iTunes U course, iOS Development in Swift, which can be found in iTunes U, as well as embracing some of the changes in iOS 11 and looking to broaden the course to embrace server-side Swift and connectivity with other devices such as sensors and controllers, think HomeKit, he also recently won an award for the innovative teaching in part for his use of iBooks, and that award was given to him by students. Dr. Outram, Nicholas, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure, Brian, of course. It's great to hear your voice. I've been teaching myself some server-side Swift, but we've decided to uh, delay that discussion for a while because I was at event last month with some community college instructors and about 10 to 15 high school teachers on Apple's new app development with Swift curriculum. And I was a little surprised or quite surprised at the way K-12 was leading and seemed to be so much farther ahead in teaching Swift and iOS app development in Swift. So I asked Dr. Outram to come on and talk about his perspective from a post-secondary in the U.S. A university perspective. So Dr. Outram, Please tell us what you teach at Plymouth University. It is not only iOS development that I teach, but of course that is part of it. The bulk of my time, I suppose, I spend teaching what we would broadly call embedded systems. So this is the programming of the hidden device, if you like, the little tiny computers that you see in monitors, keyboards, mice, control systems, sensors, etc. So I spend a lot of my time doing that, teaching predominantly electronic engineering students. Often I introduce myself as a, I don't know, bit of a fraud, because here I am talking about iOS development and I don't even have a, a major, as you would say, in computer science. So I'm entirely self-taught in computing. And uh, iOS development is something I've done since, well, I can't put a date on it, let's say iPhone 3G. So that's a small part of my job. I find that the electronics background makes me a little different maybe brings a different perspective if that's any help i find that interesting you say you're self-taught and i think a lot of teachers in k-12 i know i'm self-taught i mean i went to a coding boot camp for objective c back in i think it was 2014 and other than that i'm self-taught so i think that that could be a great comfort to people listening seeing that well these two guys have taught themselves i can too in order to do this so i i would say that uh you're not a fraud but you're just self-taught. <laughs> I am, of course, being being a little silly. Yeah, no, I don't really feel like I'm a fraud. I mean, it, it's it's as they say, you know, if you want to be good at something, it's it's actually the number of hours you clock up 
um, that makes you kind of good at it. And I've certainly put a lot of hours into iOS development and more recently Swift. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I go back to the home computer revolution. I was a kid, age 12. My dad was a school teacher and he brought home this computer. It was one of the first teachers in our area to do that. And I just couldn't get my hands on this enough, you know, and uh, I've sort of had the, uh, the bug ever since. So yeah, programming's been part of my life since I was 12. What was that first computer? Because we're about the same age. I'm curious. I could tell you, actually, it was a Research Machines 380Z. Uh, yeah, a large metal brick, um, no disk drive. I think it had a tape drive, can't remember, uh, and, and a black and white monitor. And these were the days when, you know, computing was very new, very exciting and relatively simple. So learning back then is very different to starting now. Yes, it was. Mine was a Commodore 128. Yeah, it was probably only sold in the US. <laughs> yeah, we had the Commodore PET. That was the first Commodore I saw, and then the 64 later, and uh, that was known for its gaming power, of course. Yeah. And when I was in middle school, so like grade eight, we did a little bit of programming on a Commodore 64 just to make the screen do stuff. But that was the first time I, I the bug bit me. It's funny because now we live in this global world, don't we, where we all share exactly the same devices. Back then, I started personally on, on something called a Sinclair Spectrum. I don't know if did they make it to the States? I don't know. I don't remember. Little rubber keys? No, I don't think. No, there you go. No, well, it was a British home computer. So, yeah, it was, it was made by um, a company called Sinclair Research in Cambridge. And the thing about it was its cost. It, it was actually the first home computer that, as we would see it, that uh, was affordable. Um, so I really spent far too many hours sat at home learning to program this thing, desperate to write games. Okay. And struggling. And then at school, we also had something else that was going on, which was the BBC. Well known, of course, for its television programs, but maybe less well known for its uh, educational innovation in the area of, of computing. So there was a TV program that used to come on, I think it was Sunday mornings, teaching you basic programming, basic being the name of the language. They also had the BBC Micro, a very well engineered kid proof computer with a proper keyboard, you get discs and monitors for it. And schools bought these in large numbers, and that's what we used at school. And that was really built by a company called Acorn, which split into one that did school computing and, of course, famously now ARM. And so there's a little bit of history there. Yeah, all right. The, yeah, ARM processors. Tell us a little bit about computer science program at Plymouth University. Well, I'll speak as me rather than as the university or one of my colleagues. Okay, so let's be clear about that. Okay. okay. I actually teach on four different programs, electronics, robotics, computer science, and computing. Uh, so in the computing side, we, we broadly have these, these two programs. It's very practical. We pride ourselves on teaching through doing. They come in into the first year, and at the current time, we do not assume they've done any programming, which might surprise you. So if they have, that's great. The first year, and to some extent the second year, we do tend to focus on the most formative subjects, starting with sort of procedural programming, C-sharp, then picking up OO. And then as they get to the back end of the second year, they start to work in big groups and work on real-life projects in something we call the integrating project. And this kind of prepares them for their placement, which they do in their third year in industry. 
And then when they come back, they start to look at the more specialist modules, the AIs of this world, etc. And the all important final year project, which is almost a whole semester. That doesn't give it you know, enough justice, really. But it, I think the key points I, I want to make is we are a very practical course. Um, there is theory, of course, you can't avoid that. Um, but we, we, we focus on our students being highly employable, which I think I can safely say they are. You start with C-sharp and then, oh, oh, for those people who may not know, that means object-oriented programming such as uh, Objective-C and Java and Swift. And C-sharp, of course. And C-sharp, yes. So the mobile bit, which I sort of missed there, which is where I get involved, there are two of us actually on the mobile module. And that's in stage two in the second semester. And my colleague covers Android. I cover iOS in our specialist lab. And the students choose which platform they want to go for, uh, which we can talk more about, of course. So, yes, I, I teach Swift and UIKit together over a semester, and they, then they do a practical coursework in it and, and are assessed. And they make mobile apps in the final year of their projects? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. We're seeing more and more of those. And, and some of them, of course, come in self-taught. In fact, some of the best ones I've seen are self-taught. We actually had one student, for example, that is completely self-taught, and he got himself a scholarship to WWDC two years in a row. The key thing about that student is the aptitude. We don't want to get, or we shouldn't get too hung up on, oh, this student knows this and this student knows that. Um, a, a good, well-rounded, educated computer science undergraduate should be able to pick up most languages and frameworks with a bit of steering and a bit of, a bit of coaching. But my experience is in final year projects, they come in and they teach themselves Swift, UIKit, do a project. And we make allowances for that. You know, we, we consider that distance traveled educationally. So that's part of the mark they've picked up and self-taught. And that's an important attribute in a graduate because when they leave, who knows what they'll do now and in 10 years time. You said they can choose Android or Swift. Approximately, what is the split? If you, you have any idea about 50-50, 60-40, any idea? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's actually capped because we only have 25 max in our lab now this opens up quite a big discussion it depends how much detail you want but in essence we insist that you know the option is got to be fair it's not just for those that can afford a mac equal and fair access is, is important and so it works out at about a 60 40 split 60 to android 40 to um swift and ios and uh, we kind of fill the lab with a little bit of gap so this year i think i had 24 students 23 i can't remember in the end up on the previous year because we advocated it a bit more the concern of course is that to work on self-study which is a lot of the module particularly with the coursework they need to come in so we make sure they have access in the evenings and at weekends do you see any of your students who um, have their own hardware or their own macs does that ever happen or is it too cost prohibitive oh it certainly happens it's not the majority but some of those students are coming in they've got a mac they've already played around with xcode and are already kind of halfway there so that and it's uh, there's no question it's an advantage but the vast majority don't You'd be surprised how resourceful they are, though. So, um, I've, I, yeah, because you know it's a small class, and, and we get to know each other quite well, and uh, we we chat a lot, particularly as it's the graveyard slot on a Friday afternoon. But that doesn't seem to stop them coming in. They seem to love it, uh, and they talk about you know being on e eBay and got myself a Mac Mini and 
changed it for an SSD and you know, changed the disk. And they're a pretty resourceful lot doing it on the cheap. So they usually find a way. Uh, they borrow one of a friend sometimes, that sort of thing. So you created that course in Swift for Plymouth University, and it was featured by Apple. I remember it being right next to Paul Hagarty's Stanford course. Since you are at a university level and Swift is such a new language, why were you motivated to create the course? It's not quite as you describe it, actually. Um, so the way it worked was I self-taught myself Mac programming. And then when the iPhone came along, iOS, and then I ran it as a extracurricular activity. And I resisted putting it in the curriculum for ages because of the access to Mac issue. That That is the problem. I couldn't get sufficient time, particularly self-study time on the Macs. Now, we've fixed that now. So it's only the last two years I've had it in the curriculum. The course already existed. It was it was actually the other way around. I wanted to get something on iTunes U because my head of school was particularly keen on that. And I kind of had stuff to put out there, but it just wasn't structured. And two, I wanted to teach it. So I did the iTunes U course first. And uh, that was out there uh, at least a year before I ever ran it officially internally. So it went that way around. Where did the motivation come from? I, that's a very interesting question, and uh, I'm not even sure I'm self-aware enough to know the full answer to that. <laughs> I suppose it's because with the fact that uh, I was getting really annoyed with my then PC, trying to edit video, ended up buying a Mac, was highly impressed with the, the overall finish and quality of it, and then the iPhone came along and it was the same. So that's what kind of got me into the Apple programming ecosystem, if you like, or, or, or thinking. So I learned Objective-C because I really like this Unix system with this really functional front end. And of course, the iPhone came along and that was kind of obvious that I had to look at that. I mean, everyone remembers when the iPhone came out, it was such a uh, paradigm shift for, for mobile. that um, As soon as the SDK came out, I started looking at it. And I've kind of had the bug ever since, I suppose. Now, that's the personal side of it. I like the merit of the technology. I, I like its finish and attention to detail and the fact that, yeah, it's a kind of vertically integrated stack, but I think that's its strength as opposed to a sort of white and open system. As an educator, however, Swift is a modern language that comes with certain benefits that I think the students would get, which they may not get so much elsewhere. So, for example, um, the delegation pattern that we see a lot in in UIKit in particular obviously works nicely with Swift. That's something that's kind of forced on you when you write anything for iOS. The model view controller architecture that you're basically forced to use. Again, they hear about it in theory, but this game, you've got to use it. Right? If you don't come out of an iOS course uh, not knowing about MVC, you, you weren't there. And, of course, Swift has functional features. It has modern language constructs, which are actually quite new. They're not unique to Swift maybe, but there's, but, but certainly they're all there in a nice tidy package in one place. So you could almost teach everything with Swift. So from a computer science point of view, it's a good vehicle to exercise quite a lot of patterns and introduce new ideas. For example, functional programming, which I don't necessarily advocate, but you need to know what it is and know it when you see it. So that would probably be part of the motivation. But it's not just that as well. I, I don't think we can look at this as Swift in isolation. You have to look at it as a whole thing. So if we talk about mobile development, what would be my motive there? Xcode every time. Uh, auto layout 
and storyboards. I mean, they as soon as students see those and they get it, they're sold. Now, I'm not going to comment on other platforms, but let's just say my students greatly appreciate those two tenches. I find your the what your motivation, your personal motivation with the App Store and the SDK very similar to probably a lot of people's. I know that was mine. I saw that I I never had an Apple device before I had my the very or the original iPhone, and that is what motivated me to take a dive and then getting iPads in my classroom to learn Objective-C and develop apps. I think that's probably similar for a lot of people. And I find it interesting, uh, you won't mention it, but I have also developed Android apps that the uh, interface builder, you being able to use a storyboard and lay out your interface and everything so much better than what you can do on the Android side. And what I like, you mentioned about, about Swift and the MVC model. I'm looking at intro into app development with Swift. I forget what lesson it's in. I want to say lesson six, maybe not. But there is a great lesson in there that they cover the MVC model, and I'll put it in the show notes, but my students actually had to take a well-known app in the lesson and break down each part, the model, the view, and the controller, and what each part of that famous app, the app that they chose, how the MVC model applied to it and what each component did. So, yeah, it is important to come out of an iOS, and it's really the materials Apple's created, even in the intro part, really lend itself well to that. How have your students responded to learning Swift and iOS app development with Swift? Well, I would say, if I may, it's, again, we need to look at iOS development as opposed to just Swift on its own because that's what they've done. So the, there's the impact of the language and then there's the more holistic view, which is Xcode and UIKit. One of the first things that I do with them, and it's the same with the iTunes U course, actually, is I start with auto layout because it's a really quick win and, and really does have the wow factor i have to say it's one of the biggest differences i suppose between developing for ios and some other platforms um, but the, the easy mistake to fall into is you, is you think of storyboard for example which is kind of key to this as, as just about user interface right and, and it's not where you're going with storyboard is this idea of laying out your code spatially which is quite unusual. Um, it's something, if you're an electronic engineer, you're very familiar with. So, you know, normally, we, if you think of a chunk of Python code, it's just a sequential set of statements, uh, lists of functions and classes and so forth. Uh, and that would be true for Swift, pure Swift on its own. But as soon as you go into something like Storyboard, you've got controllers actually spread out spatially across a page with lines going out and references coming back and uh, and so forth like an electronic circuit when you place components and wire them up that is a very humanistic way to view the structure of your code well that's my personal opinion storyboards kind of going that way so this is kind of really important it's one of the first big differences is that unless you're writing server-side swift when you're writing ui kit you're almost designing the structure of your code in a visual spatial way which i love and i've always imagined in my head that that's how software might get structured one day and and, and it's kind of going that way that has an impact and it's a different way of thinking and they like it Uh, certainly um so quick and easy to to hook stuff up and show that when you run it in the simulator look it works with rotate all your buttons and and sliders and things just move into the right place just by dropping a few constraints on, onto your view. It's um, really quite quite beautiful and remarkable. Uh, so what I do is I, I teach Swift sort of alongside that. Uh, I think one reviewer uh, on the internet said that on my iTunes U course, it's taught organically. And I, I kind of go with that. Yeah, that, that's a good description. So I introduce the language elements as I go, as opposed to teach Swift and then teach UIKit. 
Right? So I do them together. Now, I have to say something here. It's different for me than it is, say, for someone in K-12 or secondary school here in the UK, in that I have got students here that already know object-orientated programming. They've already written Windows applications using C-sharp. So it's a different problem. Right? They know what for loops are. They know what functions and methods and accesses are. They know all that stuff. So my task is different to, say, what you have to do, Brian. So I can get away with that. And actually, I wouldn't do it differently even now because it would bore them, I think, to just systematically go through the Swift language and then look at the actual app development itself. So, yes, coming back to your question, how they responded, uh, they learn it really quickly. That's the first thing. Uh, they already know the basic computer science constructs it's just a few things that are different things like outlets and actions the terminology that makes it different the design patterns mvc they kind of know about it they might have used it but now they have to use it and so the whole course works on that on this basis of minimum api so no great big complicated examples what i look to teach is almost like a conversion course right from c sharp whatever they've done on the windows platform um, across to iOS. Things that catch them out that surprised me even were things like optionals. And I, I'll be honest, I've got to do better this year because quite a few of them were struggling even towards the end of the semester with how you work with this wonderful language feature that makes your code safe, which is optionals. And they found that a little difficult when it comes to some of the, the bindings, if you like. I'm trying to think of the right expression. Yeah, so, so, so the basic idea behind the whole course is I want these students to be as independent from me as fast as possible. And they really don't want to be spoon fed. That, that's my experience. That's undergraduates at that level, level five, we call it. So as soon as we can get them onto a coursework, we negotiate what that'll be. It's a project, a mini project, and they write their own app and they'll cherry pick the bits of the API that they, they need to, to build their app. As soon as you do that, it becomes their own. They take ownership. They, they can work pretty autonomously. And the fun for me is I get to sort of come alongside and help them fix bugs and learn new bits of API that sometimes I've not used uh, and so forth. So it's, it, it's fun. Uh, the other thing they were quite taken with, I suppose, was playgrounds. I use those quite a bit where I do teach language features. So uh, when I say the reaction, well, it's not an explicit one. The room goes very quiet. And that's when they're, they're kind of in the zone and they're focused. Sure. And they get through it. And there are no complaints. That doesn't mean the job's done, but they are a very useful tool. Things that they found difficult, and I would include optionals in this, particularly things such as pattern matching and functional programming. Now, that is there in the course. I've put it in. And this makes a, a more general point, really, about Swift, is that it's often said that it's a good language to learn with and to start. And that's defendable. However, what you must also remember is the ceiling is pretty high too. So if you were to pull out a bit of code off the internet that was written with a functional programming style or uses some of the more esoteric pattern matching syntax uh, that you sometimes see with enumerated types, etc., you can scare people. The experience that you need to present to students needs to be quite carefully curated, I suggest, which is exactly what Apple do with their teaching notes. Yeah, If you go outside and start looking around, you'll, you'll see code that you, you wonder what it means. And that's because there is a lot of headroom in this language. It, it's not just, of course, an introductory language or a learner's language. Far from it. It's it's the full thing. It's easy to learn initially, but um, beware of that ceiling, I suppose. The other thing I would say is we've got to be careful not to focus on sort of the language and the syntax 
we're also teaching computer science. And like I said earlier, there's uh, there are the patterns that I wouldn't say are forced on you, but it'll be hard to break out of those patterns like delegation. That's a new thing to them. It takes time for that to settle in and people to, to, to learn to use it with confidence. Things like protocols and, and delegation, for example, would, would be something I noticed. I, again, I need to relook at that and put maybe a bit more work into, into teaching that stuff and helping them. That's a lot to unpack, what you just went. Yeah. Mentioning the Swift Playgrounds, I find those to be one of the most useful tools Apple has created. I love how it's just a clean interface. You don't have to worry about the overhead of Xcode. You can just get in. Because I, at least in K-12, we're teaching, I'm trying to teach computer science concepts along with Swift. And Swift is, is the language that I'm choosing to use to deliver that. Just because I think you're, you're right. It is a very approachable language. The syntax is clean, but it can get very complicated. Uh, most of it, I will not ever get to that point. Uh, Apple's t- teaching tools they created for us, the intro and app development with Swift and app development with Swift, a very good progression for us to use. It's a good fit for K-12. It is not a fit for higher education. So at the moment, they focused on schools, it would seem, and that's a very reasonable thing for them to do. It makes sense. That's where you need to start. And we're going to benefit from that. I find it interesting, the point that you made, Swift Playgrounds, I know I find them very, that's one of the most powerful tools I think Apple has created for us as educators, because it gives us a nice clean environment in which to teach, where you don't have to worry about the overhead of Xcode and all those things. And I find that the Swift, with the materials Apple has created, the intro and app development with Swift and app development with Swift, they are excellent teaching tools. In the U.S., I think we make the mistake in calling it just coding. Fraser Spears had an interesting point in episode eight. He was talking about it. Well, we're really teaching computer science concepts, and that's important to remember that it, it really is computer science, not just coding, and that he really likes Swift language and those those tools that Apple has created more than some of the other languages that he has taught previously, like Python and Java. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I don't teach in school, so it's not really maybe my place to say, but uh, I completely agree with what Fraser says. Um, what we're certainly looking or hoping to see is a good grounding in computer science. And you could come through with any language you like. You know, you could use Python. In fact, people do. Java, even no, maybe not Haskell, but <laughs> uh, the fact is you can learn computer science with any of these things. It's a question of how much you want to enjoy the journey, really. Uh, you know, you get those out there who will defend writing all their code with a text editor and a command line compiler. And there are other people that want to use an IDE with all the claimed productivity benefits. Some people will swear by Python or JavaScript. And at the end of the day, they lead to the same place if you're disciplined and you know the computer science and, uh, uh, and you focus on that. However, there are a few things which you would miss using things like Python and, and JavaScript. Uh, and one of them is that Swift is, of course, a um, statically typed language and is compiled. And uh, if you think about what, what, what is teaching, oh, crikey, I'm st- stepping over the line maybe here, but, uh, you know, we, we have a concept in our head and we want that same concept in that learner's head as well and the only way we can check that is to have a conversation and talk to them and listen to the understand do they misunderstand and of course one way to find out is to run the code 
or compile the code if it's a compiled language and see what happens. You know, you can't be at every student's desk all the time. Xcode or Swift Playgrounds and a compiled language like Swift gives you feedback the minute you try and enter a line or you try and build it. Yeah, because you get warnings, you get errors. Now, you don't get that with Python. You don't get that with um, JavaScript, et cetera, because they're interpreted languages. Uh, you find out your code is wrong when you run it. So as you know, it's Swift. You've just got to type one letter wrong and, and it shouts at you. No, 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 no. Don't know what that is. You know, and oh, yeah, OK, that's a mistake. And you go in and you check it. And the tools are getting better, as you know. I mean, Xcode will even check stuff at runtime now and look for some of the more nastier bugs but common ones if you like so you're getting this feedback this learner feedback from the tools with a language like swift and it's true for others as well it's to a certain extent it's true for java and c sharp as well because again these are the compiled languages where they are they are analyzed and compiled in advance you can do it you I mean you can write python in a disciplined and structured way and be a very good computer scientist and create the most amazing things. Same for JavaScript. You see it all the time. But it's it's harder. And uh, my view is those languages are also less productive. Maybe that's just me. Because I like the compiled languages. I like the fact that the tools are shouting at me, telling me I've made mistakes and increasingly giving more and more helpful feedback as to what I've done wrong. That would be a point that I've sort of thought about for some time. As for schools, well, there are other barriers, of course, as to why they will or will not pick up a, a platform like Swift, but I guess that's another discussion. What have your students shared with you regarding learning computer science and programming in Swift? Uh, well, the things that, that kind of stand out, uh, well, they tell me all sorts of things, of course, but not all of it <laughs> is to do with the work. Um, we, As I said, we get the Friday afternoon slot. It, I, I have quite an informal style, so they, they tell me a lot of things. Uh, but with regards to Swift and, and Xcode, I suppose the things that, that spring to mind are some of the language features. So the safety features, using uh, using optionals, once they get it, they really see the, the benefit in that. It does take them time. The optional binding is a bit strange to them. If you drill down into the documentation you, uh, and you'll see terms like pattern matching, they won't know what that is necessarily. Uh, I think... You'll find that's probably common for a lot of students because that's something you meet in, shall we say, less common languages. Uh, I noticed um, I did a session once on closures and I took a, an expression. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, that's introduced in the some of the K-12 stuff. And for a high school teacher to try with no CS background to try and explain that, it's challenging for us. So go ahead, please share with us how to do it. Now, that, that it's interesting that I hadn't picked that up, actually. I didn't know that. But um, the reason possibly is you can't avoid them. Right. So if you're going to go on to UIKit uh, and, and, and many of the other frameworks, increasingly, for very good reasons, closures are used. They're a lovely, lovely language feature. One of my favorite language features in Swift. So in a sense, Yat's brought in a little prematurely, maybe. I don't know. Um, some some kids may pick it up. But I, I did this uh, exercise in simplifying the syntax. And I, I, I didn't get a standing ovation, but it was almost there. Yeah, no, I didn't deserve it. I didn't write the language. You know, design the language or write the compiler. But uh, yeah, it was like, wow, you just shrunk that code into virtually nothing. And, and that kind of picks up on another thing about Swift that they've kind of said in a roundabout way, and I've noticed as well. Here we have what is actually a fairly type strict language it is a very strict language you have to say what you mean 
or the compiler will shout at you. And this is a good thing. The criticism of this always was it puts people off and it makes code very verbose, which in Objective-C you could say had begun to happen. But in Swift, not. Because of the type inference and some of the syntactic sugaring, it looks really clean and concise while still being really strict. Um, and that is a great thing. That's a really big achievement by the designers of the language, I think. Um, the, I mean, we've, we've talked about this, yeah. Um, to say it was a reaction, I don't know, but certainly it's something we discussed and we all agreed on. Uh, what else? I suppose, yes, as I said, some of the things that made them sit back and go, oh, what's this, was the pattern matching and functional stuff. I did cover a bit of functional programming, as I said. There's work to be done there. Functional doesn't necessarily map back down onto the um, CPU very efficiently, so don't expect it to be the, the fastest way of doing things. Um, but it's out there. You can do it. It's supported. And an undergraduate should know what it is and understand it and even be able to write it um, so that that's that's a toughie they, they struggled with that because it was completely new to them at that point in the course yeah but overall i'd say the vibe was very positive and you can tell because they want to go on and use it beyond the module now i'm expecting to see quite a few of them come back and want to do final year projects with it so i think it's safe to say that you were talking about swift being a very strict language as far as type safety the advantage of that is it's hard to get something that works but still be wrong at the same time which you could definitely do with objective c i could get something with no warning or errors and it would totally not work it's hard to get something right by accident i suppose oh absolutely and the more the tools can help you the better particularly as things scale i mean anyone that studied software safety will know this that you'll have branches of code that are run sparsely you know it might be a, a function that's only called if a very specific condition comes up it might be a block inside an if statement that only runs very rarely now if you've got a bug in that code and your compiler warns you and tells you about it that's a big deal because if you've got an, an interpreted language like Python, you're never going to find out until that code actually runs. And that could be, in some cases, months. You know, So you never know the bugs there. Also, the point I made earlier about the feedback, the intrinsic, not intrinsic feedback, but the, the compiler feedback to the, to the learner as well is, is worth a lot. You can't just equate an integer to a double. Good. I mean, I actually, you know, if you understand how the computer works under the hood, you know that there are always dangers. That's a big deal. Yeah, with arithmetic and, and copying and overflows and rounding. It may look nice and concise in uh, dynamically typed languages, but you are not in control. Whereas in Swift, you've got to do the explicit conversion. Yet, yet it's still clean when you read it. It's still concise. That's the clever bit. Uh, whereas Objective-C, we could say maybe it wasn't that concise. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that would make a good commercial for Swift, though. Uh, you know, try Swift. It's hard to get stuff right by accident. Not sure that that's a tagline Apple would want to use. <laughs> oh, well, you, you thought of it first. What has been most surprising to you in teaching Swift and iOS app development? Well, initially, it was the interest. I, I was beginning to think students won't go for it. I'm seeing lots of Android phones around because they're cheap, right? And uh, a lot of them own PCs, not Macs. So I was thinking, because they're cheap. Yeah, very. Um, although when you match, well, we could get into a whole discussion about this. When you match the specs closely, that's a different matter. Um, but yes, you buy you can buy cheap PCs. So, okay, I was expecting, what, we're going to get 10 
out of the 70. But no, it was a full, full lab. And they were keen and up for it. And um, let's put it like this. The other thing I have to say surprised me is I got timetabled three till five on a Friday afternoon. Now, anyone that's worked in higher education or any form of education will know that is the graveyard slot. Okay, getting students to turn up to that when they're adults and you can't force them to. You know, you would imagine that would be really challenging. Not at all, because it's this quite a fresh experience. Yeah. I keep coming back to Xcode and Storyboard and Auto Layout. It gets you rewards so quickly. You probably get dopamine hits every time you rotate that simulator, you know. Um, it does. And, and then when you give them a project and you don't spend too long boring them with, with Keynote and PowerPoint and going through syntax, and you just get stuck in and work on a project, which they're quite capable of doing, you're there to help them. And it's, it's just fun. So, yeah, it's a good way to spend a Friday afternoon. So that's, that surprised me, although in hindsight, maybe it shouldn't have. But uh, their resourcefulness is another one. As I mentioned earlier, they Mac have a reputation for being expensive. OK, uh, but they seem to get them from somewhere uh, off a mate or um, off eBay, as I say, and they, and they, they upgrade them. Uh, and the other thing I suppose that surprised me, and this is my fault and I take responsibility for this, is some of the common mistakes. Okay, that 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 came out um, both in Storyboard and in Swift itself, and these things I've made notes of and will improve for next year. But uh, that's education for you. Whatever you do, it's controversial. We know that. Is that right, Brian? Yes. Yeah. I I <laughs> I, I, I find your point about the interests very similar to what I have seen. So I'm sure there are other people seeing it. Students, I'm at a career tech high school, so students have to choose to come to my high school. And a lot of times students come to our high school because they don't like traditional school. And some students have not done very well, but our, my students last year would go home on the weekends with their iPads in Swift Playgrounds and write code and create activities and do things and come in the next, hey, look what I did this weekend. These are kids that have, you know, don't love homework, but they're so captivated by what learning Swift and learning to create in the Swift language and in the Swift Playgrounds app and on the Macs that they'll stay late after school. So I was similarly surprised. Can I ask you a question? Then? So how many of your students would fit that description? Is it all of them or is it is there a contingent of super keen ones that are kind of ripping your arm off to do more? I would say it's like half and the, the oh, okay. at least half. And the other half are, I mean, they're, they're, they're teenagers. They're 16 to 17 year old kids and they still have interest and they show it. But some who have never shown that kind of interest they're just they're they're into it and they are way into it. I we just had the first day of school a couple of weeks ago and I already had students some of my senior students coming up to me. We got all new Macs in our lab. We used to have PCs and just a few Macs. Now we're an all Mac lab and they're like when are we going to start an Xcode and when are we going to do this? And I want to build an app for the Business Professionals of America contest and so they're ready to go and I said, "Hey, we're all doing it. We're all building apps and that's the final project." Now I do wonder whether if the course had been Emacs and Pascal whether you'd have had the same reaction. And I suspect not, funny enough. Um yeah, I mean one of the things I have to say it sounds superficial, but it's real nonetheless. And that is that when people walk into our lab and it's it's a square floor plan and with IMAX, 27-inch IMAX all the way around, okay, and, and a little island in the middle, 
palm trees, coconuts, that sort of thing. And uh, they go in and go, I love this room. I want to work in here. And I've had school kids come in and say, I'm coming to your university because I want to be taught in this room. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. And some might bulk at that and think, oh, that's awful. But it's just what happens. Okay, it's one of the intangible benefits of having these beautiful computers. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. But okay, fine, if that's what what gets them interested. I mean, this is what it's all about, right? I mean, I know in the UK, um, a few years back, the government said, right, we're going to make computer science core from what we call primary school upwards until they start doing their formal courses and then they get to choose. Originally, they said that everyone's going to be at a program, right? I, I personally don't buy that. But what I would say is that you like football coaching in a way, you you let everyone have a go. And, and it's important then to make it a positive experience because how do people know if they like it until they've tried it? Now, if you give them Emacs and GCC, they may not like it. Uh, and that may not be a fair representation. Then what happens, I suppose, is as as time goes by, you get the students you're describing, the ones that self-select and say, I want to go and do that. And motivation is no longer an issue. Interestingly, is uh, when they're when they're going off and doing this extra time, is it stuff you've set them or is it stuff they're doing for themselves? No, it's it's based upon things that I've shown them and then they go home and expand upon it. And that's like one of the greatest benefits of the Swift Playgrounds app for iOS and having iPads and every student having an iPad is they can work at home as much as they want. And then this year, they'll really be able to see it because they'll be able to take those iPads home, work on some code in Swift Playgrounds, and then airdrop it to their Mac when they get to school. Mm. Yeah, that's a great feature. I love that. The airdropping between the two. Uh, really good. If you've only ever used a touchscreen, you probably don't mind, but I personally... No, they don't. They don't like it? They don't mind. They want to use a keyboard. They don't mind at all. Yeah, you see, I'm spoiled. I want a keyboard and mouse. <laughs> I admit it. I cannot stand working on a touchscreen. I've got to have a keyboard and mouse because I'm just too impatient. I want to type and I want to type fast. So I go straight to the Mac as soon as I can. I hardly use Swift Playgrounds, to be honest. Um, although it's great, it's just not for me. So, uh, yeah, I, the other thing I was going to say, so what you describe, um, it is often with higher education as well, that once they are given a task or they've negotiated a task that they take ownership of, usually, unless there are other issues going on, motivation is rarely an issue. When it's prescribed, overly prescribed, sort of going through the motions, tasks, you know, labs that are maybe a little bit too uh, do this and do that and do that, too prescriptive, if you like, that people lose the point and zone out a bit and uh, and maybe aren't so motivated but give them a problem that they take ownership of you really see people push themselves beyond what you expected yeah the couple points i wanted to follow up on uh that you made is with your environment what i noticed now that we have all imax and the brand new when the kids walked in they do i saw tangibly saw like a difference from last year I don't know what it is, maybe because it is beautifully designed hardware. I have actually seen that, and it's it's a shame. I don't know, maybe it's not a shame, but that there is, a, like, they've set a level of expectation for themselves. Have you ever seen Apocalypse Now? I'm not a great film buff, so no. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. Okay, so those of you who have will understand uh, Robert Duvall, a film adaptation of The Heart of Darkness. Okay. So <laughs> Robert Duvall, it's set during the Vietnam War, and he is uh, in the Air Cavalry for the U.S. Air Cav for the Army, and they 
they they attack uh, this village and some napalm is dropped and he gets out of his helicopter and he says, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. And I, when I walk into that lab, a lot of mornings, I walk in, take a deep breath and I say, I love the smell of new IMAX in the morning. It smells like victory. I love this. And uh, <laughs> our, our one uh, computer uh, IT guy just rolls his eyes at me. But uh, we'll, that's, that's, people will be rolling their eyes at this very discussion. I have no doubt. But because it seems so superficial, but but it must tell us something. There must be something in this because it happens to us too. They go into this lab. There's a reaction, and maybe it maybe the design. And the look does matter. I mean, let's face it. You get two cars on, on the forecourt, and one of them's a shiny, uh, I don't know, Mercedes or something. People go, oh, I'd quite like to try and drive that. Yeah, it's a good piece of engineering. It's um, beautifully presented. Yes, absolutely. I, I can't quite explain it. It's the same with the iPad. It, it, mm-hmm. it just makes you want to pick it up and fiddle with it and, and touch it and things. Yeah. The other point I was going to make was I when I'm coding, I prefer to be at the Mac. But what I found was... Um, my iTunes U course, when I updated it for, for Swift 3, I did it all on the iPad in Swift Playgrounds app just to you know prove to myself I could and share with other people that I, that I could. But I am not a touch. I don't like working on the glass. So I went out and bought myself Bluetooth mechanical keyboard here. Uh, can you hear that? I oh, hear lovely it. That... Sounds lovely. Yes, I can hear. Oh my gosh, it's good travel in those. Yes, good resonance. Yeah, I like it. Like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we know <laughs> we can type faster on it. So if you're ever caught in a situation where you have to use Swift Playgrounds on the iPad, you can do coding on that. Just I recommend a good Bluetooth mechanical keyboard. I'll put a link in the show notes that I bought the Lawfree, I think it's called. I don't know, it was recommended by Jason Snell. Okay, so yeah, I, and I have tried it with a keyboard actually, and it is definitely an improvement, but I'm still looking for the full screen help page on the second desktop. <laughs> and okay. uh, you know, yeah. and I don't want to reach across and touch a screen i don't know why it's a repetitive repeated motion i i don't know it, it's more than that um it's a smaller screen of course i've only got regular size or ipad minis i don't have the large pro maybe that's a factor i don't know and hey ipad pro the the big one with the keyboard and the pencil you're pushing the price of a of an imac yeah and you yeah know. you could definitely walk away with uh the new 13 inch non-touch bar macbook pro even i think for similar money Okay. Yeah. So, and I know, I mean, the Mac is my first device. If I had, I say this, I had to give up an Apple device. The last one would be the Mac. You can find the show notes for today's episode over at swiftteacher.org slash podcast. Don't forget, you can also join us in the Swift Teacher Slack channel and join in all the great discussions we're having by going to swiftteacher.me. Additionally, if you'd like to ask questions of the Swift Teacher community, you can tweet out at underscore Swift Teacher. That's the Swift Teacher podcast account. And include in that tweet the hashtag AskSwiftTeacher, and we'll be sure to answer your question on the next episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Time to get Swifty. 